Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue Weekly Podcast, this being number 48. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and the interviews on this week's show were so late that it was almost live. Even though they're scheduled, there's always that little bit of nervousness just in case it doesn't all come together. But it did, and here it is. We have two guests on the show this week. The first is Kessler's Per Christian Miklebost, talking about the company's traceability and consumer engagement partnership with Dutch dairy company Friesland Campina on the dairy cooperative's Frizo infant formula in Asia. And in the US, Beth Newhart spoke with Carla Fantoni, VP of Communications at the Carton Council. As the INTLFC Stone EU Dairy Outlook and Educational Forum 2019 is taking place as we speak, we won't be having an update from Liam this week, so we'll catch up with him next week. As it's the first podcast in September, I'm going to subject you to the usual crazy days coming up this month. Yesterday it was Be Late for Something Day, and so naturally I celebrated that today instead. On a dairy note, yesterday was also National Cheese Pizza Day. I was going to tell you today is Fight Procrastination Day, but I thought maybe I won't. September the 12th is National Milkshake Day in the US. September the 15th is Make a Hat Day. I have no idea why. But the 19th is International Talk Like a Pirate Day. I was just wondering if anybody knew why pirates were called pirates. Because they are. September the 22nd is both Elephant Day and Hobbit Day. And September the 28th is Ask a Stupid Question Day. Actually, every day is that for me. There's loads more. I'm not going to talk about the weather this week because it was rotten and nothing else happened, so we'll get right to the news from the week that you can read at dairyreporter.com. We had an article on the biggest U.S. research dairy being constructed in Idaho. In the U.K., Arla's Lurpak butter has been repackaged from foil into a box. And also in the U.K., there's concern over what will happen to cheese exports if there's a no-deal Brexit. I actually can't even keep up with what's happening over Brexit. Who needs binging on box sets when you've got British politics? No deal, no election, unless there's no no deal. It's all a bit much. I'm sure over in Europe they're just shaking their heads. And against the backdrop of Brexit, there's also the potential Scottish independence referendum. I saw this week that a German company had put out a map of Europe with an independent Scotland as part of the EU. Who knows? Anyway, moving on to less confusing news. Ely has issued its financials. Norwegian dairy Tinna has announced job losses as part of its reorganisation. And Arla Foods Ingredients has received generally regarded as safe approval for Alpha Lactalbumin in infant formula. We also had a weekly article from Asia, this time on technology on Indian farms. Ben & Jerry's has launched a new flavor to highlight structural racism, and the U.S. Dairy Export Council says there are positive signs after a visit to China in spite of new tariffs. Fonterra is targeting water savings in New Zealand, and in Germany, the DMK Group has taken full control of its joint venture, DV Nutrition, which is based in the Netherlands. There are lots more stories, including one on a new Finnish cooperative, which is a part of Valio. 
but I didn't want to butcher the name in Finnish. That's definitely a unique language and one that intrigues me. I do love languages and remember starting to learn Finnish when I was in school, but the teachers told me learning three was enough, plus English, which when you're from Yorkshire is probably a foreign language anyway. So I didn't get very far with Finnish. I'm trying to learn a bit of Italian as I'm going to be going there twice in the next couple of months. We'll see how that goes. So, from the news, we head to our first chat this week, and it's with Per Christian Miklebost from Norwegian-based serialization technology company Kessler, which has been working with the Dutch dairy company Friesland Campina to provide global traceability and consumer engagement services for Friesland Campina's infant formula brand, Friso. So, so basically, you know, our role is like a back-end system. So you can sort of think of it as... Uh, as Friesland Campina has their IT, uh, you know, infrastructure that they use for warehouses, for distribution centers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and we sort of plug in as a cogwheel, as a backend solution into that, allowing for unit-level serialization and unit-level track and trace, which basically means that normally you follow pallets and containers when you ship something from A to B, but with our backend system, we can also, you know, take that down to really the unit level. So we very much have sort of a back-end system supporting uh, the, the various IT uh, solutions that they have to make this all work. Is this something that's, uh, that is used in other industries? Now, so so Kessa has basically been around since 2002 and offering various solutions around the sort of our core technology of, as I mentioned, unit-level serialization and unit-level uh, traceability. So I have done this for uh, for various companies. So I can mention some. Some uh, I cannot mention, but like Pfizer, for instance, um, they use our technology to protect some of their uh, key brands in Hong Kong uh, and other countries around uh, Southeast Asia. We also have uh, examples of using this for you know consumer engagement programs uh, in the U.S. I cannot mention the brand, but a larger sort of consumer engagement program in the U.S. And we also use it in uh, projects in China. We're working with Rekin Benkisi, for instance, also in a brand protection type of, uh, of offering. But most of it is around what we call traceability. This is obviously being used by Friesland Campina with an infant formula. Could this be used? This could obviously be used in other dairy products as well, then. Yes, we're basically for any any product. So we, we, we're sort of, like I said, we're a back-end system. Typically, I would say mostly today you'd find it in areas where you have, there are legislation requirements around traceability. Uh, if you have you know, problems with the complex supply chain and, uh, and when you have consumers that really are requesting more detailed information about the origin of a product. So basically, we say we're sort of agnostic to, you know, being... QR codes or NFC or whatever you want, a sort of a carrier of this unique identity that we provide. And also it's sort of independent of industries. So any basically customer that has the challenging supply chain, have customers um, requesting or demanding uh, more information about the product's origin, we can support. And people want sustainability from companies and they want to know more about the products that they're buying are those really the main benefits to the end consumer the ability to give them more information yes i think in, in some countries 
where is sort of a lack of trust also in, in, in the retail stores, etc. There is a, a benefit for the consumer to be able to go in and verify that this product is, is uh, authentic. That's like one, the very sort of basic uh, solution. That's what we did in Pfizer. The second part is about wanting to know more. So as you can imagine in, uh, in, in China, uh, sort of indirectly through the whole uh, business around uh, formula, there's been uncertainties as to the origin and, the, and what these products contain. So being able to, to really uh, make the consumer confident about the product, how that it's, you know, that the milk has, and the product has been dealt with with deep care by the brand through the, through the whole uh, supply chain for production is very important in certain markets. So that's the second benefit. And the third is also we have the customers that on top of our traceability solution build what we call consumer engagement or loyalty programs. So that could be that you scan the units and you collect points for later on rewards. It could be lotteries, a lot of fun stuff. We also work with a, a video service together with, uh, with Mondelez where you can, if you receive a Toblerone chocolate as a gift, then whoever gives it to you can also then at the record a video that sort of follows that product. So it's really a wide variety of, of the scenarios that we can solve and benefits we can offer to the consumer. And the consumer benefit is one part of it. The other part of it is the, you know, the, the data that you are able to collect then through your supply chain. So you basically, like the freestyle campaign, we're basically connecting the, the farm with the consumer and all the steps in between. And that gives them also access to data that, will, uh, that can give them insights to a very deep level of detail uh, to their supply chain and how it all works. Yeah, and, and I suppose as well, the the company can then build up an image of where their customers are, what ages their customers are, that kind of thing. They can build profiles on who's buying their products. Yes, definitely an important part of that. And uh, like we, um, one of the markets, uh, key markets for this uh, solution with the Pena is also mainland China. So there's basically two pieces to this. I just need to, to just to touch on that one like quickly. So Freesan uh, Campina has a solution they call Freeso Track Easy. That's purely a sort of a traceability solution. In select markets, like in China, they also build this loyalty program on top of it. And by, if the consumer shares, uh, you know, information through the WeChat uh, application, the WeChat ID, then yes, the customer can also build up quite a solid base of their customer base. And, and I suppose as well, they can also build up how successful this is because every time somebody responds, that uh, that builds up a number of respondents so they can tell whether this is something that people are actually using or not. Yeah, so we have detailed knowledge into both, you know, somebody just picks it up in the store, scans the, the, the code uh, under, the, under the can to see its origin. And uh, of course, we keep track of how many times each individual unit has been scanned, when IP address uh, and other data that we collect. And then on top of that, as I mentioned, a, a, a local uh, uh, loyalty program that they built, and they also go down to the detail level of the person. So in again, with uh, quite the detailed uh, information about each each scan. And how easy would it be for Friesland Campina if they say, well, okay, we're, we're not getting the uptake that we want on this, or we're not getting the right information. How 
how easy is it for them or for you to be able to change the information that you get through those QR codes? So, so the system in itself is very, very flexible. Uh, we can at any time sort of change the information attached to a batch of products or an individual unit. And what we see from others is that you, with these loads of programs, you can also, you know, on the, on, on the fly, almost change the in incentives for scanning. And that's where this loyalty program that is being developed also comes into play, where you get the consumers to interact with the product. So, so it's important. So this project is, you know, it, it's primarily a traceability and loyalty program, right? So sort of implicit in that, you'll be able to sort of verify the, the path that the product has traveled. So there's less of a focus around the brand protection. It's more around giving the consumer a good uh, view of the original product and also then uh, as, a, as, a, as an add-on, in addition to free so track easy, the ability for a loyalty program. They can see where it started and all of the steps along the way where it's been. Yeah, but if that's sort of the main point and the fact that everyone has a unique ID, so if somebody you know would make a fake uh, box and then that code will then be detected that that's not part of the program and, and the, the consumer will be alerted and free so can take the measures that they need. So if somebody tries to put uh, non-genuine products into the supply chain, at the various points that will be detected. If you look at what we do for what, what's being done in EU and the US for pharma products. Now, so they give every product a unique code at the time of production. And then when you go to a pharmacy and you buy a prescription medication, that is scanned at the cashier when you buy it. Right? Then they check in the system, this unique identity, has that been produced? Yes, it has. Has it been sold before? No. And then it's sold to the customer. So if that code has either been sold before or it doesn't exist, then they basically get a warning, right? In addition to that, on all medicines, you have a tamper-proof label that you put across the opening, right? So you can detect if somebody has opened or manipulated the, the product inside the packaging. So basically, when it comes to this brand protection, those are the, the one that's a bit uh, challenging. If, if I have one unit, and I know that if I eat this, I die, <laughs> then you would not trust that label. You would not trust that, you know, that you wouldn't take the risk, right? So what we do is like we build, a, we secure a complete supply chain, which means could there potentially be one counterfeit product that could, you know, um, enter the supply chain? Potentially, but the main thing is to secure your whole supply chain so that you break the business case of doing counterfeit products. Because as a counterfeiter, you basically have to be able to sell in, in volumes to make money off of it, right? Yeah. But if you, through your supply chain, can detect that and stop that quickly, that's an efficient measure. It's a bit like your alarm system at your house. If you, your neighbor does, if you have an alarm, your neighbor doesn't, the burglar will probably go to your neighbor's house. But a person can break into a house with an alarm, but just have a very short time <laughs> before somebody shows up at your door and, and stops it. This solution that we built for Chris and Campina is mainly a traceability solution to give information to the consumers about the origin of the product, get the history, to sort of get the confidence that how free Sankapina work when they develop uh, their products. And the other part is the consumer engagement program. And then implicit in that, by getting consumers to scan these codes, you also build a secure supply chain. You build the alarm system that will be able to detect on a system level. What we do is mainly securing the whole supply chain and make it very hard for 
for anybody to make money off of counterfeit products in the supply chain. When did this system that you developed with Friesland Campina, when did that come into effect or has it already? Yeah, so, uh, so it was launched in, uh, in, uh, in Hong Kong uh, in August. Uh, now we're uh, moving to, to mainland China and then it's, uh, it's going from there to Southeast Asia and Europe. So it's sort of gradually moving the free so track easy uh, part of the solution. And have there been any early results come in or is it a bit too early yet? Uh, it's a bit too early yet to talk about uh, to talk about the results, and that's also for Frisank uh, Campina to share. But uh, so far, things are uh, are working well. And you know, this is quite a complex setup, right? Because it involves integrations into the uh, manufacturing facilities in in Europe. It's integrations with the warehouses and the distribution centers, and also sales representatives in retail and the consumers. So it's quite a complex solution. Right, so these products are now moving through the supply chain out to the consumers. But so far, I think uh, what I've heard, the, the feedback is good that uh, the overall solution is, is working uh, well. And then the consumers are now starting to, to receive the products and starting to interact with, uh, with the product. Next, Beth Newhart talked to Carla Fantoni who is the VP of Communications at the Carton Council, about a recent report the Carton Council commissioned on recycling in the U.S. We are a group of uh, carton manufacturers that uh, got united several years ago with the mission to, go, uh, to grow um, carton recycling the, in the country. And it has been a pretty comprehensive um, mission and pretty comprehensive work because to really drive recycling, sustainable recycling, um, we really need to make sure that there is infrastructure for that to happen. So it means that we need to ensure that there are recyclers that would, you know, take cartons and uh, recycling to new products, that um, we have um, sorting centers that would sort cartons um, to be recycled. We need to make sure that the cities and the municipalities include you know, cartons into their list of recyclable products. And then finally, we need to uh, make sure that consumers know that they can recycle their cartons. So basically, um, the Carton Council works with every stakeholder across the, the recycling value chain for cartons to make sure that there is sustainable infrastructure in place and then uh, that recycling is um, truly happening in an efficient way. So that's a little bit about us. We, um, a little bit of background as to this survey or the poll. You know, recently, I would say in the past year, um, 18 months, um, we have seen a, an increased amount of uh, publicity around the challenges of recycling, right? So it is talking about recycling in a negative way. And since our mission and our whole purpose is really to drive and increase recycling, um, we got really concerned that publicity would really impact in a negative way um, consumer behavior. So that's why we decided to engage in, um, into the poll to really understand um, exactly those, um, those facts. If we go into the, um, the results, I think that the uh, what we unveiled is that a significant amount or percentage of, uh, of the population is interested in recycling and um, and says and says that they they recycle at home, 
So 85% of those um, that we talked to said they uh, reported that they recycled. The only 42% um, of the people, though, have heard um, about the, the challenges of recycling in the media. So the vast majority have not heard about the issues or, you know, recycling not being effective. Um, however, only 20% of people really say that their behavior changed, you know, in the last um, year or 18 months. So, in a way, somewhat good news that, you know, 42% of people have heard about recycling and challenges in the past, but only 20% have really changed, you know, their behavior. I think that uh, uh, for us, that was all good news, right? We were like, you know, good news that people are still recycling and, um, and the, there was not a significant behavior change. Um, the not-so-good news, though, was the level of skepticism that we saw when we asked people if they believe that once they put things into the recycling bin um, or packages into, into the recycling bin, if those containers would truly be recycled. And um, uh, unfortunately, only 35% of those people said yes. And uh, uh, the rest would say no or unsure. Right, so that that unveils to us a big aha moment that uh, the level of skepticism is quite high. People don't believe that their recyclable items are actually being recycled by you know their local governments. So how are you educating them or ma making sure that the recycling really is happening? So where do you want to go from here after you know finding out about all this skepticism from this survey? Definitely the, um, the data that we collected informed even further our communication plans and how do we, um, and how we, we educate consumers. So Carton Council has been um, investing into consumer education for the past several years. However, this changes uh, a bit how we do the education, um, not just to tell people how to recycle and um, and what cartons become um, once they are recycled, but really showcasing the behind the scenes. Um, it became quite clear that people want to understand the how, right? So once I put my cartons into the recycling bin, what happens to them? You know, what's the process that um, that they follow um, to be recycled, and then um, and then showcasing the recycling process through videos, through, you know, interviews with people that um, are engaged into that recycling process. And so bringing to life a bit more of this behind the scenes is truly how, you know, the, the actions that we are, um, that we're taking um, from this research. So I think as, at least as it pertains to dairy, um, you know, people are uncertain about recycling paper cartons that hold shelf-stable milk products or shelf-stable um, milk alternative, like plant-based milk alternatives. So, you know, people will say that there's different layers in the, in those cartons that, you know, makes them not recyclable and people will just throw them away or, you know, they'll say there's plastic in there. So is that, um, you know, like a significant um, sector of recycling that, um, you know, is facing any challenges or anything like that? 
I'm very glad that you asked this question so that we can, you know, um, you know, clarify this point. So there are two types of cartons in the market, you know, the, the ones that go into the refrigerator case, like, you know, the, the milk or the juice cartons, and then the ones that you're referring to, which is the shelf-stable carton. They are both recyclable, and they are both being recycled together, right? So the process that they go through is the same process either way. And even though both of them are multi-layer um, packages, they are recyclable, and as I mentioned, they are being recycled. The process that they follow is um, basically uh, once they are sorted into, you know, what we call into its own grade, meaning that cartons are just separated from all the other um, containers, they are, sent, they are sent to two different types of recyclers. The first one, they are paper mills. The paper mills, they have, um, they have equipment that basically separates the, the fiber from the rest of the other layers. Those are basically, uh, it's actually a super simple process. Um, they are, uh, this piece of equipment looks like a gigantic blender, uh, right? So if you put all the cartons into this gigantic blender with water, actually um, the, the, the layers get separated and then they do, they do separate the, the, the fiber to be made into new paper product. Um, the residual uh, polyethylene and aluminum are, you know, can be further recycled. There, are, uh, there is a second type of recycler for cartons where they use the whole entire carton and basically um, after being shredded into small pieces, they are binded together. So imagine a big panini press. So that's what the equipment looks like. And, uh, and basically they are, um, they are compressed into uh, boards. So they are made into um, you know, building materials that are considered green building materials because they don't use any chemicals in the manufacturing process and so on. So things like you know, um, board wall um, and things like that. So what do you think that dairy producers and dairy packaging can do to be more sustainable and even more recyclable than it already is? So I think where um, the, the dairy brands can really help is helping educate consumers. There is still, you know, a lot of confusion out there as to, you know, what is recyclable, what can be recycled, and so on. Um, you, you even brought up, you know, the point about the septic cartons versus the refrigerated one. So there is a lot of confusion out there. And I think the brands have that channel to, to their consumers. So um, the big help that they can lend is exactly um, helping educate those consumers and clarify those points making sure that everybody understands, you know, what, uh, what can be recycled and how to recycle things properly as well. Uh, one of the things is, um, you know, the recycling logo on the package. It's something that um, we find that it's, uh, it's super important because the package is the first place that consumers go to see if that package is recyclable or not. So that's one point. And I think also having recycling information on their website, um, if they have the ability to share messages through social media and stuff like that, it, it can be extremely um, helpful. The Carson Council has a wide range of uh, resources to support those brands as well. 
um, you know, whether they are videos or language or social media, you know, posts and images and so on. So we have, you know, a whole lot of education, um, education material that we could definitely, um, you know, share and uh, those dairy brands can use this as a resource. The survey was mainly focused on the recycling habits of U.S. consumers. Are there other markets that are, you know, very far ahead of us in terms of recycling? And, you know, what do you think that we can learn from them? I think, you know, um, what I can say is that there are countries um, actually super near to us that um, do have, you know, recycling rates much higher than we do in the U.S. I would say that Canada is a good example where they are um, further ahead, further ahead of us. Um, I think other countries like, you know, Germany in Europe, for example, they're also, you know, further ahead. So I think we have um, quite some ways to go. You know, things take time because, again, sustainable recycling only happens when you have infrastructure in place and when you create that, um, you know, the the behavior change, right, um, in consumers' minds so that it's uh, it's really top of mind um, that, you know, uh, that they should be recycling and how they should be recycling, right. Our main goal here is to make sure that people understand that these cartons are recyclable, that we um, they are being recycled in the U.S. and Carton Council is here putting a lot of effort to really make sure that we grow, you know, recycling of carton packages in the U.S. We understand that we cannot do this alone, so that's why we forge collaborations with you know, with the recyclers, with the municipalities, with um, industry associations and, you know, governments as well, because we truly believe that, you know, a rising tide um, lift all boats, right? And uh, we, we could not do this alone, but from our side, it's a huge commitment to really make sure that people can recycle their cartons and that they do so. And that's it for another week. We do have several interviews already lined up for you next week, and it looks like we might be going Dutch, as three of them are in the Netherlands. However, it is Friday the 13th next week, so who knows what will happen. And if you suffer from Paraskevi decatriophobia, which is the fear of Friday the 13th, apparently all you need to be able to do is to pronounce Paraskevi decatriophobia, and you'll never have an unlucky Friday the 13th again. Sure. Anyway, I hope you all have a great week, and thanks for listening.